there appears to be lots of considerations, lots of things that the group considered, as well as different avenues for treatment. One thing was clear, however, is that overall we are shifting away from the TNF-alpha inhibitors, which uh, were hugely popular several years yes. prior to the invention of these newer, more targeted agents. What's the reasoning for this change? Well, you know, very good point that you bring up. So if you had asked the question about what is an insufficient response five years ago, we would have said, if you don't achieve a PASI 50, perhaps, mm -hmm. right? So back then we didn't have all of these newer, cooler agents that would target uh, very specific interleukins. We had anti-TNFs and they were great. I think most people would get a PASI 50, mm -hmm. but very few people would get a PASI 75. So really, if you asked me five years ago, an insufficient response would be anybody who uh, didn't get great than PASI 50. But now look at this, just five years later, we've raised the bar. We're now at PASI 75 because all of these newer agents, newer than anti-TNFs, can easily get you PASI 75s in about three to six months. And even higher these days. With oh, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised in, in a couple of years' time, the insufficient response would be those who didn't achieve a PASI 90. Well, well, they say that 50 is the new 40, so, you know, maybe uh, I was going to put you on the spot <laughs> right. and say, would you say PASI 90 is the new PASI 75? <laughs> or, or, you know, right. going, going down yeah. the ladder there. Yeah, and maybe we want PASI 100 one day, right? I mean, we're, we're getting there. Uh, so and I think that's, that's exciting, right? That's exciting for patients. That's exciting for clinicians to have all of these options available to us and to allow patients to feel like there's hope that they can yeah. achieve their normal day-to-day -day life activities without having just, psoriasis. Just imagine you had very bad psoriasis, almost uh, head to toe, and then you have a 99% clearance and they consider it, oh, well, that's an insufficient response. <laughs> <laughs> Something else. So you get 100%. <laughs> Hi, my name is Dr. Rao, and you're enjoying the Skin and Joints podcast. Welcome to the Skin and Joints podcast, a national multidisciplinary conversation on all things dermatology and rheumatology combined. And more. And, more. and, and don't forget, Danny, it's a holiday special episode. Yes, it is. So... Today, this is going to be an interesting one. We're going to talk about a novel consensus developed called Horizon. But before we do that, how are you doing, Danny? Um, I'm doing okay. I'm actually on call for the week, and I had not the greatest call weekend, so I'm a little bit tired. But I'm here, and I'm excited you to discuss... You look fresh. I'm glad you think so. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot that goes into me looking fresh. Well, I was also going to say you looked a bit tanned, because uh, you oh, know, no, rumor no, no. has it that you were in California. Oh, no, no, no. I don't do tans. I was definitely wearing my sunscreen all the time. But yes, I was in San Francisco for a week, which was amazing. It was the first time that I'd been there. And it was such a beautiful, vibrant city. And I'm really looking forward to going back again. You know what? I was thinking we can maybe have some practitioners from the U.S. Mm -hmm. And it'd be nice to do a, a live broadcast from Summer Sunny like for sure. San Francisco. For sure. Today, we're going to be talking about a novel consensus developed called Horizon, a treatment algorithm for moderate to severe plaque psoriasis made by 39 dermatologists from across Canada. Now, that's a lot of people to put together in one meeting or maybe a few meetings and have some sort of agreement that you can actually come up with. At the end, the group did come up with an agreement of sorts on their top three therapy recommendations for biologic treatments of patients with psoriasis. So 
Today, we have a very special guest with us, mm-hmm. and he actually is going to be breaking uh, a records of sorts on the Skin and Joints podcast. He's the first returning guest expert. Dr. Rao hosted a masterclass episode on the management of severe acne, if you will recall, and the people spoke and wanted an encore mm-hmm. from Dr. Rao. Mm-hmm. So we're very excited to, to have him as part of uh, part two, totally different topic and theme, Absolutely. but nonetheless... Yeah. So those who are tuning in today can't see Dr. Rao, but you can just take my word for it that he's very festive in a Santa costume, which means he's probably bearing many gifts for us, i.e. gifts of knowledge, which we're going to discuss today. But before we get into all of that, let's hear from Dr. Rao. How have you been? Well, thanks, Danny. And thanks, Aaron, for having me back. This is quite an honor for me to be back. And I'm doing very well. Thank you. How about you guys? I'm doing all right. Yeah. You know, I was going to say Edmonton is not too uh, far from the North Pole. So this episode <laughs> is, I think we couldn't go with anyone else, Dr. Rao. Obviously. Um, obviously. You're, you're, you're too kind. That's right. It, <laughs> it, there's snow on the ground and everybody's very festive right now. <laughs> we're getting pretty chilly out here in Vancouver. Actually, I think we're up for a snow dump and I can see uh, people are starting to worry. We don't have enough salt trucks here, Dr. Rao. That's one of the challenges. So. <laughs> oh, if you've ever seen Vancouver when there's snow on the ground, the whole city basically shuts down. No one knows how to function when there is snow. <laughs> right. So Dr. Rao uh, is a double board certified dermatologist and a certified cosmetic surgeon based in cold Edmonton, Alberta. He's also a full clinical professor of medicine at the University of Alberta and is the medical director for Rao Dermatology. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So like Aaron mentioned, we are talking about the consensus that was developed called Horizon. Dr. Rao, before we get started, do you have any New Year's resolutions for this year? That's a good question, Danny. I guess, you know, I'm just going to try to smell the roses a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I think everybody should. And this past year has been a very hectic one. I mean, it started off really like gangbusters with with COVID. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then most of us got immunized or should have gotten immunized. <laughs> yep. And then, you know, things started getting very busy. So really haven't had too much time to smell the roses this year, but that's my plan for 2022. Nice. I think that's a great plan. I think it's nice when you leave things like a bit general like that. I find making specific resolutions, at least personally, is not something that I like to do because I just disappoint myself when I can't meet them. I think I agree with that. You make a resolution, something like COVID comes and hits like a train and and things fall apart. But uh, I can't believe how fast this year has gone. So Dr. Rao, can you tell us about how this consensus group came together and why was it important or what was the real world need for developing this psoriatic disease management guidance for practitioners? Yeah, it's a really good question and it it lays uh, the whole groundwork for for everything that we're going to be discussing. You know, now is the best time ever in world history to have psoriasis and any type of psoriatic disease, even psoriatic arthritis or any of the manifestations of psoriasis, because there are so many great treatments. In fact, I think there's over 10 possible treatments with respect to biologics alone. And it is really a good time for patients. Patients are going to be winning ultimately this year and Mm -hmm. in the next few years, because there's just so many different treatment options and various classes of of therapies. The problem is how do you make sense of it? And, And as a prescriber or enroller, onto these uh, great medications. How do you make sense of it? And which ones do you uh, provide under which scenarios? 
has always been a question because there's really no great recommendations or guidelines. There's certainly no official guidelines. And frankly, every pharmaceutical company that makes a product wants you to only prescribe theirs and that's not realistic or, or good. So how do you make sense of this heads and tails uh, of this whole situation? This group got together in order to assist the rest of us to make those decisions, to make it wisely, to uh, look at certain scenarios and see what the data says, as well as real world experience. Now, you mentioned it's a group of dermatologists and its expertise all across Canada. So I believe Vancouver, Edmonton, Hamilton, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, Quebec City and St. John's. And I believe it was a series of three meetings. What were the objectives of these meetings specifically? Well, I think they they wanted to somehow get together and come up with a consensus of what they would do as experts, as skin physicians, with regards to psoriasis. How how do you make sense of the four major drug classes? And then uh, which ones would they recommend under different scenarios? For example, is it uh, psoriasis involving the skin only? Mm -hmm. Or what happens if there's other comorbidities, for example, psoriatic arthritis, or even special anatomic sites of involvement, where uh, perhaps our measurement tools are are lacking a little bit with respect to uh, capturing how much uh, this is really affecting a patient. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to put together a guide to help uh, everyone else who, who prescribes or, or sees patients who have psoriasis to uh, be able to give some validated real-world experience-related prescription and, and non-prescription advice. Mm-hmm, I can mm-hmm. only picture a group of 39 dermatologists uh, in battle in a boardroom mm-hmm. fighting over, you know, <laughs> what's the best choice for the nails versus the scalp. Uh, and like you said, Dr. Rao, psoriatic arthritis. So I just audit bringing 39 clinicians together on a meeting, not even a Zoom meeting, this is a live meeting, can be, can be yeah, a challenge. Yeah, and to agree on something. And, um, yeah. and you had mentioned this already, and we, we just mentioned it again, is there's special considerations to be made with regard to the patients that present to clinic. So in your practice, what percent of the patients would you say have more than one manifestation of psoriatic disease versus those that are skin limited? Yeah, I'd say about 50% are skin limited and the other half would would have some manifestations. So either is that going to be a very special anatomic site, we call them, Mm -hmm. or is it going to be other organ systems involved, for example, joint arthritis Uh, psoriatic arthritis and so forth. Mm -hmm. What were the objectives? Could you describe the overall objectives of the process? Yeah. So the thing is they wanted to define insufficient response to progress to a biologic agent. So we all know about biologic therapy and how they've really made a a difference in a number of skin diseases and and non-skin diseases. Well, psoriasis is no different and there's so many great biologic agents, but when do you actually go to the biologic therapies? What would define an insufficient response was the first thing that they needed to define. And they did that. That was the first objective. Second objective is to achieve consensus with the three choices of biologic agents. So there's uh, three major choices with regards to class. And we wanted to know in order of preference and based on literature data and real world experience, which one would they choose? Mm -hmm. Let's say if it was skin only or is it non-skin? And also they looked at two patient populations, those that were biologically naive and those that were biologically experienced. All right. So could you break it down for us a little bit more? What were the actual steps that were taken from meeting to meeting with regard to coming up with this consensus at the end of the day? Right. So what they did is there was three meetings and the first meeting basically looked at the burden of disease. So they looked at psoriasis. They did a good data review. And then they looked at uh, baseline management practice. So regardless of 
your ability to prescribe biologics or not? What is the baseline treatment that you should do? And then they started to develop cases and submit cases to each other. And this, I think, was in meeting number two, where they participated in case studies. And then finally, there was a review of the national prescribing trends, and they tried to form a consensus. So they basically reviewed their cases and then gave their impressions in order to come up with these guidelines. Mm -hmm. And finally, that draft protocol had to be developed and then finally validated. This process, I've personally been part of a few consensus guidance-type frameworks or committees. And a lot of work is putting into developing the domains and then the questions and then voting and make sure, you know, do you have a 75% threshold? Is that considered consensus, right? So it's always right. an interesting science that has a bit of art and flavor to it. And just as going back to what you said, insufficient response and the real world practice side of things can be a little bit different from the trial data as well. But alongside, we know that health coverage also is one of those considerations that we just can't ignore. How you know influential is provincial health coverage when guiding treatment with, especially with yeah, biologics? Very good question. You know, it's actually quite critical. So regional considerations will impact our decisions very heavily, I would say, uh, because we want to make sure that people can pay for it. If they can't pay for it, they won't get access to the drug. And it differs from province to province. And that's something that they definitely had to look at. And I know here in BC, for example, you have to try the DMARDs, either be intolerant or fail them and for a certain amount of time before moving on to getting uh, reimbursed. And, yeah. and two of them. It's two really hard in British Columbia to get onto for a For three months each, consecutively. There can't be a break in between. It's very specific. But it just goes to show that there are lots of considerations that uh, need to be made across provinces. And even for patients who move between provinces, definitely had cases where patients coming from Ontario right. that were used to their biologic therapy and they'll come to BC and we sometimes have to start over from step one, which can be challenging and frustrating for patients, especially when they've had such fantastic disease remission. But it's all part of the process. And, and that's a... That's a really good point you bring up, Danny. I mean, we've I've certainly had some cases personally where coordinating with the PSP as well as the transition of coverage because they move can be a critical period mm -hmm. to make sure that they're still on board and continued on their therapy. Mm -hmm. So definitely the PSP comes in handy depending on which company you're working with to help with that bridging. Yeah, well. and, and you know, I think a lot of companies are extremely generous, but generosity only lasts for so long. Right? <laughs> we, we need to sustain it. But companies these days are, are so good. For example, for Cosentix, the, the company that makes that will cover that for, for uh, an indefinite period of time. But you know, eventually it, it would be more sustainable if you had uh, good private coverage or public coverage. Now, many dermatologists, I was just, as we've said, went into the development of these consensus guidelines and many meetings and over the span of a year or two. Um, what were the hopes um, of this program and this consensus in guiding clinical practice? I think the hopes were that we, we would at least have some type of a document or resource that one can go to because right now there really isn't. Mm -hmm. There's too many treatment options that are available and we know that they're all good. I mean, the, even if you used one of the older treatments, it would still work quite nicely. Mm -hmm. But what do the experts do is, is really what we want to know. And if we copy them in their, their structure and their rationale, maybe we can get the same type of results. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. right, right. Yeah, I think it puts that art on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. uh, the... the Part of the science. Yeah. Uh, now, looking more specifically on patient factors, what patient factors, if you could summarize, were considered important in the development of this guidance? 
Well, there's a few things. I think uh, one is going to be where they live. Like you said, it, it depends on the province and regionally, there's going to be certain rules for public payers anyway, in terms of what is covered. The other thing is uh, also geography. Uh, if you're too distant from a phototherapy center, well, then that option is removed altogether. Mm-hmm. We want to also know where on the body the, the psoriasis is because there are special sites, special anatomic sites that even if they had a small amount of uh, body surface area, it would mm. be considered more intense or more severe, maybe qualifying them for more advanced therapies. So we, we need to know that. And then finally, uh, patient preference. Some patients may maybe not, would not like to be injected. They prefer uh, pills or to stick with topicals. Although these days, most of the patients don't bark at getting an injection. They think that it's actually quite easy. And the companies have made it very easy as well and quite painless. Dr. Rowe, what about patient-specific factors like pregnancy or whether or not they've already been on a biologic before or if they're actually biologic naive? How did that kind of play a role into this? Yeah, there were other criteria as well. So one other patient consideration was, in fact, the pregnancy and lactation state. So there are certain biologics that, that have been found to be better, at least in clinical studies, than others showing that it's very safe, doesn't cross the placenta, things like that. For example, sertilizumab is an example of one. Mm -hmm. And some just haven't been studied, so we don't know. So that was looked at. Very, very good review to bring that up. Also, uh, malignancy. Mm. So they found that some biologics and uh, small molecules, like Mm -hmm. a premolase, may actually have a lower risk for malignancy compared to other medications. And also some types of psoriasis, for example, pustular psoriasis, seems to do well with some anti-interleukins versus other ones. I thought it was interesting if a patient has uh, an IBD comorbidity where it's important to know about the IL-17s in that patient population. The reason I bring this up, we had a patient who had IBD with severe psoriasis, I would call it, and looking at the workup, IL-17 has a protective effect on intestinal inflammation. So we don't want to be blocking that particular sequence of cytokine release. Right, right. Although there's three AL-17 agents on the market, and uh, some of them, they say more than others would would have uh, an effect on IBD, a negative effect. So the ones that don't are trying desperately to show that that really mm-hmm, it, it mm-hmm. doesn't make much of a difference. But, but in general, I think um, that's right. The recommendation from this group was not to use IL, anti-IL-17s for IBD. Mm-hmm. That's a good point you bring up, Dr. Rod, because now we're getting more specific, more tailored to the subtypes of the actual receptors, right? Right. So we're getting more specific, knocking out what we need to knock out and not the protective right. effects. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, uh, you touched on many of the patient considerations, one of which was site of involvement. And I'm wondering how the recommendations differ based on the sites of involvement. And if there are certain sites that trump others, is there a percent of degree of involvement that is a consideration when coming up with these consensus guidelines? Can you walk us through that a little bit more? Yeah, for sure. So if there's no uh, special sites of involvement, meaning that the skin only or joint, then they recommend following a certain pattern. What they say is if a person has gone through the topical regime, maybe plus or minus phototherapy, then what's recommended is a systemic anti-inflammatory. We're talking methotrexate, cyclosporin, maybe acetretin as a retinoid. These are things that you would try first. And then if there's insufficient response, meaning that 
they haven't reached a certain amount of clearance, then they can go to the biologic therapies is what's recommended. And there's a certain order if they're biologically naive and they don't have any special sites to go as follows. The group has recommended number one, risankizumab, mm -hmm. number mm -hmm. two, gaselkimab, and number three, secukinumab or Cosentix. There's some other categories where there was joint involvement. So let's look at those patients. Let's say they're exhibiting nail manifestations. Would that change the order or the ranking that the group came up with? It would. So they consider four special sites in particular. So one was nails, the second was joints, the third was scalp, and the fourth was palms or soles hmm. or both. So those are considered special sites because they're associated with greater uh, debilitation mm -hmm. and people just don't like it. So if you have scalp psoriasis, it may not be dangerous in any way, but having that degree of flaking, tenderness, pain, inflammation has uh, deemed it a special site. Mm -hmm. So going back to your question, what about joints and nails? Well, they found that if you do have that along with skin involvement, you, then your psoriasis merits a different order of choice of your biologics if you're biologically naive. Instead of risankizumab first, what they recommend if you have any of those special sites is to use secukinumab, which is Cosentix, would be the first choice. The second choice across the board was ixacizumab, hmm. which is TALTS. And then the third choice, depending on what you have, would be either adalimumab, Humira, or gaselkimab. So for example, if you had uh, nail manifestations or joint manifestations, that is psoriatic arthritis, the third choice would be adalimumab. Okay, we have some cases. We're gonna throw some fastballs at Dr. Rao to see what his treatment decision would be based on the algorithm. But going back to one thing you mentioned about insufficient response. So according to the criteria, what are the characteristics of an insufficient response to biologic therapy? Right. So there's two ways to diagnose or, or to label somebody as having an insufficient response. One is if the patient is dissatisfied after three to six months. Mm. So we've had three to six months of these therapies and they're just dissatisfied. They, they would consider that alone to be a, a example of insufficient response. If you wanted to get a little bit more uh, objective, then an insufficient response could also be a failure to topical or systemic therapies, meaning that your PASI score, remember the psoriasis area and severity score, is less than 75 for a given time. Typically, it's about three to six months. There appears to be lots of considerations, lots of things that the group considered, as well as different avenues for treatment. One thing was clear, however, is that overall we are shifting away from the TNF-alpha inhibitors, which uh, were hugely popular several years yes. prior to the invention of these newer, more targeted agents. What's the reasoning for this change? Well, you know, very good point that you bring up. So if you had asked the question about what is an insufficient response five years ago, we would have said, if you don't achieve a PASI 50, perhaps, mm -hmm. right? So back then we didn't have all of these newer, cooler agents that would target uh, very specific interleukins. We had anti-TNFs and they were great. I think most people would get a PASI 50, mm -hmm. but very few people would get a PASI 75. So really, if you asked me five years ago, an insufficient response would be anybody who uh, didn't get greater than PASI 50. But now look at this, just five years later, we've raised the bar. We're now at PASI 75 because all of these newer agents, newer than anti-TNFs, can easily get you PASI 75s in about three to six months. And even higher these days. 
With, oh, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised in, in a couple of years time, the insufficient response would be those who didn't achieve a PASI 90. Well, well, they say that 50 is the new 40. So, you know, maybe uh, I was going to put you on the spot <laughs> right. and say, would you say PASI 90 is the new PASI 75 or, or you know, going, right. going down yeah. the ladder there? Yeah. And maybe we want PASI 100 one day, right? I mean, we're, we're getting there. Uh, and I think that's, that's exciting, right? That's exciting for patients. That's exciting for clinicians to have all of these options available to us and to allow patients to feel like there's hope that they can <laughs> achieve their normal day-to-day life activities without having yeah, to Just imagine you had very bad psoriasis, almost uh, head to toe, and then you have a 99% clearance and they consider it, oh, well, that's an insufficient response. <laughs> Something else. So you get 100%. Good point. This is coming. It's coming. It's coming. Um, just going back, one more question I had about this. And, and, you know, there's a lot of, again, as Danny said, a lot of considerations put into developing these algorithms. But when you look at joint involvement specifically, how much joint involvement is needed to qualify? And so what I mean is, let's say a patient comes in and has a persistently painful pinky versus infrequent pain versus joint pain from running. When you look at true joint pain in relation to PSA, are we talking about something else like morning stiffness and and generalized swelling and pain. How do you distinguish that? Or is that more in the domain of the rheumatologist? Yeah, it's a very good question. They do have uh, standardized ways of of, uh, evaluating that in the rheumatology realm. But most of the time, the dermatologists don't look at that. I I would say in the real world, it's just going to be involvement and we can gauge it according to uh, function. So like you said, if there's a lot of pain and dysfunction associated with it, then we, we would have no hesitation uh, going to more advanced therapies. But if it's just an asymptomatic inflammation that uh, one would see, then it, it wouldn't be as important. But uh, we would want to exclude, uh, so some things are better because we know that usually with psoriasis, things will get worse, even with the joints. Mm-hmm. So you might want to start somebody on a agent that, that covers both the skin and the joints. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, something I noticed is when you were talking about some of the treatment ladders and the various considerations based on the subgroup, whether it's nail or scalp involvement or whether it's purely cutaneous, the choices that we talked about and laid out, many of them were IL-17s like ixekizumab, and many of them were also IL-23s like rizankizumab and so on. Is there any evidence comparing the safety and efficacy of the IL-23s and the IL-17 inhibitors, both you know, real world and clinical studies? Oh, there definitely is. And and both have been found to be extremely safe. There might be some uh, controversy with respect to comorbidities. They talked, to, we mentioned the IL-17s and use in, in IBD, mm-hmm. and maybe the IL-23s perhaps are not as effective in joint disease as the IL-17s. But generally speaking, for skin, both of these are very, very effective. We're talking PASI 90s, PASI 100 in many cases. Right. And also when we compare to TNF-alpha inhibitors, you, you summarize why we've transitioned away from them. But also one consideration they talked about in this consensus is a patient's previous experience or lack thereof to biologic treatment or treatment strategy. And could you tell us why this is important and, and what quality of evidence you know went behind making these recommendations? I think the term sometimes used is why is it important to know if a patient's biologic is naive or if they're bio-experienced? 
Right. That's a good point because it is very important because if they've tried uh, an agent that's in a certain class, it's very possible that they may not respond uh, to something else that's in the same class if they failed the original one. So often what we'll do is we'll try one class and if a patient did not do well, they failed to uh, reach that PASI 75, most people would agree maybe we try a different class. That's something. The mechanism of action, uh, let, let's change it completely to a different molecule of target. So switching out of class. Right. Now, Dr. Rao, I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> um, <laughs> My pleasure, please. Yeah, we're, we're going to present a patient case just for our listeners to get an understanding about how these orders and the considerations that you're making and learning what your choices would be in terms of biologic therapy. So... Imagine a patient with joint symptoms, so whether it's dactylitis or enthesitis, morning stiffness, or a diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis that's confirmed. So for this specific scenario, what are the choices for this type of patient? Right. So they have joint symptoms, and they, but they've never been on biologics before? That's correct. Right. And they have skin disease, of course. Yes. So they have psoriasis, a widespread, probably psoriasis. Mm -hmm. Well, because this is what I would consider a special case or a case of psoriasis with a special area of involvement, in this case, joints, my first choice would be secukinumab mm -hmm. or Cosentix. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason for that is because we know it does well for both joints as well as for the skin. Right. It's just been shown through data. Uh, but I can tell you from real world experience, mine as well as my colleagues, this is what they say as well. So the guidelines for Horizon say that the first line in such a case should be Cosentix or Secukinumab. Right. So they went in order. Number one is Secukinumab. Number two is Ixikizumab, which is TALTS. And the third is Adalimumab. Now, uh, we're talking about cyclokinumab specifically. It seems that it exists amongst many of the treatment ladders, regardless of which specific site is involved. What makes cyclokinumab unique? Well, there's a couple of things. One of them is its safety profile. So even with the IBD, they found that Cosentix was, was safer than potentially the other anti-IL-17s, at least in the studies and the real-world evidence. So they have no hesitation. Most uh, dermatologists wouldn't have a hesitation with Cosentix, even though the uh, recommendation was not to use it. If you have mm -hmm. IBD, many of them still do, in mm -hmm. including myself. So I've never seen that for that particular medication. It's just a class concept that might be a little bit unfair. Right. So they're, they're lumping all the anti-L17s into the same class. <laughs> the other thing is uh, the efficacy seems to be great, not only for the joints, which happens in about a third of cases, but for the skin. That combination of the safety and the efficacy and the reliability, the durability of that medication is great. And also, if you had to stop it and restart it, you can actually uh, resume your improvements. This day and age, sometimes people can't continue their drug for insurance reasons or travel reasons. They can safely stop it and resume it without really any impairment. One, one point around that too is, let's say you're starting a patient who's bio-naive on one of these molecules, biologic, and you want to optimize them before switching them out of class. In practice, do you ever increase a dose uh, for the patient or shorten the frequency so That's that right. we can maximize yes. that. Is that something that you do in real-world practice? Yeah, yeah but, but both of those are, are definitely good strategies. I think the easiest one would be to change the frequency. Okay. So you would double up on the frequency as opposed to the drug itself. 
when you increase the drug uh, concentration or, or the amount, sometimes you'll get side effects, mm-hmm. at least potentially with other drugs. Biologics are always a little bit different. They're usually a bit safer, but most people be more comfortable just increasing the frequency. So we'll move on now to those patients who are biologic experienced. So the bulk of the recommendations in this patient population, they vary depending on which medication they're currently taking and which site-specific manifestations we're concerned with. So let's dive into maybe three of the sites for a deeper understanding, and no pun intended there. <laughs> so regardless of, of the site, if a patient was on adalimumab and their bio experience and they were having an inadequate response according to what we spoke about, what would be the next step that the group would recommend? Right. So regardless of any special site or not, uh, if you have uh, failed adalimumab, meaning you're not reaching that PASI 75 uh, within a reasonable time, three months, what is recommended is to switch out of that class. So we, we mm-hmm. know it's an anti-TNF. Mm-hmm. So they're recommending, let's forget about the anti-TNFs altogether. Let's go to a different type of medication. The one that they recommend is either IL, anti-IL-17s or anti-IL-23s. Now, how does that compare with, say, something like secukinumab? So, you know, we've talked about how great it is for many subset patient populations. But imagine you have a patient and you've already done all the modifications you can within the class itself, within the drug itself, I mean. Where do you go from there? Do you immediately switch out of that class as we've done with adalimumab or, there, or do you stay within? Yeah, so so both of those are possible. So they actually, the consensus group looks like they, they were butting heads on this one. So they said <laughs> optimize first, they all agree. And then with secukinumab, and if it uh, continues to be ineffective, meaning you're not reaching a PASI 75, uh, some of the groups said switch within the class and some said switch out of the class. It, they said it depends on the patient profile. Okay, right. okay. So moving on to another subcategory of patients who have a pummel plantar psoriasis, can you tell us a little bit about just some of the unique challenges these patients face? Yeah, uh, pummel plantar psoriasis, is, it's really challenging to treat historically. We've only had, prior to the biologics, three agents that potentially could do it. One was acetretin, the retinoid, oral retinoid. The other is cyclosporin, and, one, and the other third was methotrexate. And even those, it, it would be very challenging to completely clear the hand and foot involvement Mm. uh, in a safe way because you'd need to have higher doses and long durations. So it really just wasn't great. We'd often add phototherapy to it along with topical anti-inflammatories. And now that we have the biologics, it's really changed the improvement for these patients because they are really debilitated. As you can imagine, we use our hands all the time. And if you have these pustules often on the hands or deep inflammation it can be quite painful and really, really tender. Uh, there's also stigma associated mm-hmm. with it psychosocially. It's really hard to hide your hands all the time. And uh, same thing for the feet. So we often have it covered in socks and shoes, but sweat and cracking yeah. can cause super infections mm-hmm. to occur and very painful. And sometimes you get quite a bit of cracking and bleeding is associated with that too. I'd say it definitely amplifies depression. I've seen people become suicidal over that. In that regard, it's a psychosocial demotivator. Uh, I think of all of them, probably pommel plantar is one of the worst. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you touched on some of the older agents that were previously used exclusively for pulmonary psoriasis before the advent of the biologics, specifically apremolase and acetretin. What role do they play, if any, in this inpatient population of pulmonary psoriasis? Is it adjunctive therapy? Can it be used as monotherapy initially? How would you approach that? 
Yeah, that's a good question, Danny. So just by experience, again, this is why we rely on the guidelines and real world experience. Mm -hmm. They say that it works better with a biologic. So you you can Mm -hmm. use it by itself, but it really works well if you do it as an adjunct. So for example, the IL-17s we talked about work great on the skin as well as the joints. And really, they work quite well on palmal plantar. Uh, psoriasis as well. So if you're going to use a premolas or uh, acetretin, if you add it to your anti-IL-17s, you'll see a big, big improvement compared to the anti-IL-17 alone. Mm-hmm. Okay. So moving on to another uh, body side here, scalp. What's your experience like with, with helping these patients? Right. It's very challenging. I mean, you look at them and you see redness and, and some scaling and thickness, sometimes even a little bit of hair thinning because of the inflammation that's there. It's hard for the hairs to latch. Mm -hmm. And you think, hey, this isn't so bad. It doesn't look like it's that involved or tender or painful. But then you talk to the patients and you say, if I could cure or treat one area of your body, where would it be? They'll often say the scalp. And and there's several reasons for that. There's tenderness that they don't often uh, discuss with their physicians. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of scaling and, and flaking, which can be a stigma. For people, even their choice of clothing has to be changed. They don't want to wear black, for example, with this. It can extend onto the face. It can extend onto the ears, the neck, and it can cause super infections as well when the skin breaks down. Okay, to throw a zinger at you, Dr. Rao, let's say a patient was on excusumab and um, they were were being treated for uh, scalp psoriasis and experienced an insufficient response. According to the consensus, what would be what would be the next step if they were fully optimized and even then uh, notice really much of a clinical right. difference? So this esteemed group has uh, decided that if, if such a case occurred, that you should switch within the class. So they're saying the first line is to change to another anti-IL-17, either secukinumab or berdalumab. We're talking about Cosentix or Celique. Uh, respectively. They said it doesn't matter either one. That's what you should do. And was there any other alternates, let's say, if a patient was, yeah. um, you know, So if you ask most dermatologists, they'll be split. Some will say, just go to another class in this particular case. And some will say, just switch out of the class and go to a, an anti-IL-23. So we have gaselkimab or rizinkizumab. All right. Now, I know that one subset of patients uh, that I find very, very challenging and I really, really empathize with when it comes to psoriasis are those that present with nail psoriasis. Because just right off the bat, topicals alone are never even remotely sufficient Mm. in treating it, um, at least in my experience. Um, So what do you find are the unique challenges for these patients? Well, nail psoriasis, they, they say, is often associated with joint disease. It mm-hmm. could, in fact, be the uh, herald for that. So that's one. And, and then also the uh, cosmetics of things, the way things look, especially for females. But although anybody can wear nail polish these days, but uh, traditionally it's been females. It's one of those things that is psychosocially debilitating, mm-hmm. but also possibly functionally debilitating if they have psoriatic arthritis underneath. And in this subset, what are the treatment recommendations that the group came to a consensus on? Right. So if, if a patient is bio-experienced uh, and it has it's failed to work, their original biologic agent, they're recommending changing to an anti-IL-17. Uh, we have three choices. Any one of those three choices are fine. And uh, failing that, they're recommending an anti-IL-23. And there's actually three choices of that as well. So we got Gaselkimab, Tremphia, our Rizinkizumab, Skyrizi, and we actually have a new one, which is Illumia, Shulagizumab. Okay. Now, looking at the overall 
consensus and taking a step back here, what research would further help fine-tune these recommendations? And, and what would you say are the limitations of the program? and the? Well, one of the things is that uh, we, we need to know uh, how validated these are. So these, these are all real-world experiences we want to see. Is this really validated by study? So we really haven't seen that yet. Uh, we haven't compared a lot of the agents to each other yet. So not too many head-to-head trials. This is just our, our experience, which is important, but it'd be nice to have that validation. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, maybe we talked about combination therapies, but then also cost, right? We don't, we, we're of course living in this cost conscious, prohibitive environment with regards to cost. Who pays, right? All, all of that has to be uh, organized and worked out. But I think the first step is to have these nice guidelines. And I think that real-world evidence and data collection is super, super important, right? And it's always nice. I mean, there's so many different permutations uh, that we can go over here. And and to test them all would be a lot of Mm -hmm, time mm -hmm. and resources Mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. That's Um, very true. So so we're moving towards the end here. We only have a few minutes left as part of the special holiday edition. Uh, Don't worry, we won't make you sing any Christmas carols uh, today. Uh, That'll be the next episode, Dr. Rao. And I think we'll put a poll to all our listeners and see if they want that. Oh, that's a dangerous question. That's a dangerous question. (laughs) So to put some whipping cream here on the cake, let's say a patient had hypertension and pustular psoriasis. What other considerations would we, we, we need to consider as part of that conversation? Yeah, that's a good question, Aaron. So there are some recommendations by the group. One recommendation is uh, if a patient has hypertension, then medications, they don't recommend cyclosporin, for example. Okay. And let's say a patient had a family history of MS. I thought it was interesting. These are real considerations that they're not just walking with a skin disease or mm-hmm. a skin and even a joint disease, but beyond that. Yeah. So they looked at MS very specifically. If you have a fa- family history of MS, they say that uh, secukinumab or Cosentix actually has data in patients with MS. Because there is data, they say that that may be safely used. And uh, the opposite of that is TNFs may actually cause demyelination. Okay. And Stelera may also be an option. Patients, mm-hmm. okay. And we already touched on this a bit, but just to remind our listeners, and if you have a patient, uh, a pregnant patient or someone who is considering uh, starting a family, uh, what considerations would you make there? Yeah, so there, there is actually quite a bit of data for sertolizumab. So sertolizumab is an anti-TNF, and it has been shown um, that it does not cross the placenta as well. There's no transmission. So it's very safe during pregnancy. That would be because there's so much data there, the medical legal uh, risk is very low. And that would be the one that I'd choose. I feel like we're posing a board exam question. Yeah. He's just knocking out of the park no, here. Yeah, so. He's going to get back at me in a year and a half when he <laughs> asks me these questions. <laughs> so enjoy oh, while you can. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's all. We packed a lot of information mm-hmm. into literally 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I, my challenge coming into this was, I think we can both agree, is how do you depict uh, complex algorithms and put them into an audio format that mm-hmm. people can get some bite-sized practical information they can use tomorrow in a podcast. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, let us know really if you think good. we've achieved it. You guys have done a great job with that. And I, I like the idea of the cases. So, so that really brings it home. Mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. do you do if this is the case or this is the case? And fortunately, th- these agents have been around long enough that people have had that experience. Right. So we were just giving it to you. I, I'm really pleased with that. Thank you. An exciting time for patients indeed. Thank no, you, Dr. Rao, for joining us as part of this uh, special episode. My privilege, guys. Thank you. And I'd I'd love to come back anytime. (laughs) We'd be happy to have you. And so now, Dr. Rao, before we bid you farewell, do you have any last words uh, for our listeners? 
Just remember that this is the age of psoriasis. This is the age of a lot of skin diseases. We have so many wonderful options. Regardless of, of what we do, the patient ultimately is going to win. These, of course, are, are our opinions and experience. But even if they had any of these, it's far better than anything we've ever had in the past. It's the best time to have a skin problem. I don't think I could have said it better myself. Th uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes. And uh, consider yourself the lucky one uh, to, to start this <laughs> I trend. Really I think am. we're going to get some phone calls after this episode <laughs> from our uh, previous guest experts. So I'm thanks sure. again, Dr. Rao. Thanks, guys. You guys are awesome. Thank you so thanks. much. So, Danny, just to summarize, what are your overall thoughts? I mean, we talked about a lot today. Yeah, I think Dr. Rao also kind of touched on a lot of different things, and he even mentioned it in his final thoughts, which is this is an exciting time for patients. It's a time where we have a multitude, a myriad of options for them. Now, of course, there are hurdles that sometimes you have to overcome with regard to considerations between provinces, but mm -hmm. that's why we're here. That's why we're the experts, and that's why we would be happy um, to walk with patients on that path to get them to the point where they do have a PASI of 95 and feel like that they have their life back in order, mm -hmm. whether it's just cutaneous limited, whether they have joint involvement, scalp involvement, nail involvement. I think all of this is an exciting time for a patient. And you know, it's an exciting time for me because I get to be able to offer patients these uh, options in a few years. That is super exciting. And from my end, I've worked with a lot of these patients after they got prescribed to help them navigate their condition mm -hmm. and everything from drug coverage to managing side effects. And I think that there's so many little things to consider. My mind's almost blowing up right now mm -hmm. with all the information mm -hmm. we talked about, malignancy, pregnancy, comorbidities, IBD, pustular psoriasis, if they have an infection or history of MS. There's so much consideration that goes into these therapies. And, and like you say, I think we're getting better results, better efficacy, better safety. Super exciting. What we'll do is we'll also post some of the considerations we talked about uh, on the website. Thanks, everyone, again for joining in, and uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Wait, guys, you forgot to mention. As a reminder, we kind of have to say this. The opinions expressed on the Skin and Joints podcast are for educational purposes only and do not constitute nor replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult with your healthcare provider if you have any concerns or questions about your health. By the way, this episode broke a new record for being the first one with a returning guest expert. Thank you to Novartis for supporting today's episode with a medical educational grant. Also, the super cool beeping sound effects sprinkled into this episode are every time a correct answer was said. If you didn't know, let's chat soon.